I'm Ben Brophy. I'm one of the elders here at DRBC. Uh, this class is biblical peacemaking, so if you are expecting a biography or something from the Proverbs, you are in the wrong place. And I, you know, if you need to go elsewhere, I won't be upset about it. Uh, but today we're doing biblical peacemaking. Uh, before we jump into that, I'm just going to pray for our time together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we worship you as being a good God, of being a God of peace, a God that makes peace where there is no peace the God who sent Christ to make peace on our behalf when we couldn't make peace for ourselves. I do pray that as we look at your word and what your word has to say about peacemaking, that we would be edified, that our affections for you would increase, and that our desire to make peace first with you and then with others would increase. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is Foundations. The topic is just biblical peacemaking. Yeah. Which we're right all in the right place. I didn't know that peacemaking is one of the foundations classes until this week, actually. So, <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Matthew five nine says, "Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God." This verse is pretty straightforward, though. I think most of us, instead of making peace, our inclination is to make war. Maybe not literal war, but to advance our own interests. So if we're in traffic and we see somebody scoot in front of us, we say, hey, that was mine. That was my spot. What are you, what are you doing? And we're angry. It's a natural reaction. Um, our desires are at war within us. And so when our desires conflict with someone else's desires, this creates conflict. And our inner lawyer starts to be activated, justifying the behaviors that we do, the thoughts that we have. And we start to conflict instead of make peace, instead of considering others worthy of greater honor than ourselves. So conflict is natural to the human condition because of the fall, because of sin, because of who we are, and because of that inner lawyer that's constantly justifying us over those around us. So today we're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about making peace. Point one is God makes peace with his undeserving people. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to do a quick survey of Romans, which is awfully ambitious for a class on biblical peacemaking. But the reason I'm doing this is I want to get our eyes vertical, upward. Um, when we think of peacemaking, it's very easy to think of as it relates to other human beings. But ultimately, our deepest need is to be at peace with the Lord. Um, and so I'm going to, since there's a ton of verses here and a ton of things to write in, I'm going to ask several of you to read passages of scripture. Uh, and the first one is Romans 1, 18 through 23. Romans 1, 18 through 23. Anybody? Oh yeah, go for it, Mark. All right. Uh, for the wrath of God. Don't worry about that. <laughs> drop, drop the Bible now. For the wrath of God is revealed in heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
Thank you. So that first point, humanity is at variance with God, which is a fancy way of saying we are in a fight with the Lord. First section of this text says the wrath of God is revealed against us because of our sin. And so we are in a state without Christ. We are in a state of conflict with the Lord. And that conflict is all our fault. It's a result of our sin. Um, This text shows us that the truth of God has been made plain to us, and yet, without Christ's intervention, without regeneration by the Holy Spirit, we persist in fighting, rebelling against the Lord, even though the truth of who he is is made plain to us. And so we are at variance with God. We are in conflict with him. We need peace to be made on our behalf. So humanity is at variance with God. Would somebody read Romans 128 through 32? Thanks, man. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteousness de- uh, righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Mm. So humanity is at variance with God, and evil pours out of us and against God. That's the next point. Evil pours out of us and against God. So we are in conflict with the Lord, at variance with him because of our sin. And with that sin unchecked, evil pours out of us and against God. Sam just read the sin list there that's exhaustive. My favorite is disobedient to parents, as if there's, no, as if there's any sin too small uh, to put us at enmity with the Lord. There's not. Um, and so, as, so the Lord gives us life. Everything we have has been given to us. Our intellects, our money, our time on this earth, who our parents are, where we live, when we live, all these things are determined by the Lord. Every good thing that we have is given to us by him. And in response, we rebel and then do a whole bunch of evil stuff. So if ever there was a conflict (laughs) where it's so clearly one person is completely vindicated and the other is not, it's our conflict with the Lord. Um, So evil pours out of us and against God. The next, the next section. Uh, I have somebody read Romans eight six through eight. I'm. We'll leave Romans three twenty three alone. But Romans eight six through eight. Yeah, go for it. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hmm. There is none who is righteous on his own merit. In the flesh, none of us can please God. So here we are. We're in conflict with God. Evil is pouring out of us. And then the next point, there is none who is righteous on his own merit. Meaning, there is nothing we can do. In the flesh, we are condemned. We can't justify ourselves. We can't make ourselves righteous. We can't do anything hard enough or good enough to bridge that gap, to resolve the conflict, or to use the title of this class. There's nothing we can do to make peace between us and us. And God. Um, but there's good news. So Romans 4 24 through 5 1. 
Talone, you want to read that? I'm just going to call him and call people out. Um, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up from our trespass and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So Christ makes peace for God's people. Christ makes peace for God's people. So we just determine we're in a fight with God. We're doing evil stuff. We can't do anything to atone for that. But praise God, Christ does. He makes peace on our behalf. And so this is point D. Christ makes peace for God's people. Uh, I'll ask, I'll do one more in Romans. Romans 8, 16 through 17, if somebody would read that. Hmm. So, okay, we're in a fight with God. We're evil. We can't do anything about it. Christ makes peace on our behalf. But, point E, Christ does more than restore status quo. So it's not just that Christ, when Christ makes peace for us on our behalf with God, it's not just that we get returned to where we were. He actually makes us heirs with him. It's more than we could ever imagine. We're set to inherit something glorious beyond all imagination with Christ. Because... We gain Christ's righteousness as he pays the debt for our sins. So peacemaking, as Christ does it, is more than just status quo. It actually con it converts us from uh, an object of wrath to an heir uh, with Christ. So that's Romans 8, 16 through 17. The last point here, uh, and there's several verses, it's just point F, which is this is all over the Bible. God making peace for his people is all over the Bible. I gave uh, about four references here. We're going to talk about Ephesians 2, 11 through 17 later. But there are just reference after reference after reference of God being a God of peace and making peace on God's behalf. Now, for most of us, this is just simply a good reminder of the gospel. But I'm curious if, uh, what do you guys think? Why did I do this quick detour through Romans and hone in on the gospel? in a class about biblical peacemaking? Not a rhetorical question. <laughs> Actually one for all of you. Because you have to understand that there's conflict before we realize how peace is made. That's right. What the basis for peace is. Yep, that's one good one. And how did, what is peace? We had one shalom or picturing it as a brick wall with a missing brick. It's yeah. not whole. It's more of a you're at peace when you're a whole, and we're not at peace. We're not whole until we're with Christ. Mm -hmm. Christ. That's good. And scripture calls us to be like Christ in in every way that we can as humans. Obviously, we're not going to die on a cross for our friends, but you know, mm -hmm. holiness. And so, if we're going to be like Christ in peacemaking on earth, then we need to see what Christ has done for us in peacemaking. Yeah, and I think all of those are really good. That in particular is what I was thinking most about in terms of like, if we look at points A, B, and C, of we really don't deserve this, uh, and we look at what Christ has done for us. So when we ourselves are in conflict or we see others in conflict, Christ is the example of how far he's willing to go in order to make peace. And so when we ourselves are wronged and the, the natural, the sinful or the natural man in us is going to say, well, they did this, or they're going to, this, I did this, you know, it's immediately self-justifying. Christ is our example to say, actually, 
you haven't really paid much of a price at all relative to what Christ paid. And you almost certainly have more respons- you certainly have more responsibility than Christ did. So he's our example in the sense of a his life, his example, his peacemaking is an exhortation to us, no matter how great the conflict is, no how no matter how deep the sin is, our attitude should be towards peace. We should be willing to bear a great cost in order to make peace. So this is kind of why I, I ran us through Romans. And ultimately, our greatest desire, our greatest need for peace is not with our fellow human beings, but rather with the Lord, which only comes through Christ. <clears throat> so that's section one. Section two. Where does conflict come from? Where does conflict come from? Would somebody read James 4, 1 through 3? I think your outline says 1, but verses 1 through 3 is helpful. I got it. Yep. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Mm. So according to this text, where does conflict come from? Within us. That's right. So the answer to A is you and me. Conflict comes from us. We are responsible for the conflict we see in our lives. Our passions, our wrong passions, war within us. We desire and we do not have. And so we conflict, we quarrel. This is what James tells us. Uh, somebody read James 4, 11 through 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brother. The one who speaks evil, or the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver <coughs> and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbors? Hmm. What does this have to do with conflict? So if I'm saying this verse has something to do with where conflict comes from, somebody have any idea what I'm getting at here? Not quite. I respect it, though. <laughs> no, the answer is our flawed judgment. So when we put ourselves in the judgment seat and kick God out of it and say, this is right and this is wrong, and we're not appealing to the scriptures or to what God has to say, we're going to start to create um, conflict. Particularly when we're looking at another brother or sister in Christ and we start to put ourselves in the judgment seat where only God belongs and say... Um, this is, I'm going to put myself as judge above you. I'm going to adjudicate uh, this conflict, particularly when we're involved in the conflict. And isn't that the temptation? Like, I'm going to adjudicate the wrong between us, and that creates conflict. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so for sure, like, as a church body, we're going to do things like, yeah, chow, I mean, Matthew 18, which we're going to talk about, going one on one, two on one. Church discipline is all part of this. Um, including uh, peacemaking. What I'm getting at in this particular text is when we are directly involved in the conflict and it's not a, hey, you sinned against me, but rather it's uh, my desires are conflicting with your desires. And those may not be sinful desires, but they are conflicting. And then we put ourselves in the judgment seat. That's where we tend to have a skewed perspective on what is actually happening. So that would be an argument for like, if two brothers conflict, 
that's where we start appealing. If we can't resolve it between ourselves, that's when we start appealing to the church to be like, hey, actually, can you help mediate? Can you help make peace here? Um, but yeah, it's a great question. Because there's not, I, I think one of the common things we'll often hear in the world is like, one of, I've, one of the most popular Bible verses in America is like, don't judge. Ye, ye shall not judge, right? And that's, that's not the case. The church is called to judge within the body of Christ, particularly in a local congregation. That's a good point. Good clarification. Uh, would somebody read James 4, 13 through 16? Come now, you, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Mm. And it is you, and as it is, you boast in your arrogance. Mm. All such boasting is evil. So this is our sense of entitlement. Our sense of entitlement. Uh, and this plays out in a whole bunch of ways. Um, but it's essentially making a claim on something that doesn't rightly belong to you. Um, so how do we see this vis-a-vis -vis other people or, or the Lord in some ways? Um, you know, within marriage, for instance, uh, you can start to say things like, oh, I'm entitled to like just some time away from the kids, or I'm entitled to the house looking this particular way, or I'm entitled to being able to go out with my whatever, whatever source of conflict um, or whatever sense of entitlement you have within a relationship like that. Uh, within friendships, it could be the same thing. I often see people say like, oh, I, like, you should make time for me. Like, we, are, we are friends. You should, I'm entitled to that. Because when we have this sense of entitlement, these expectations, <clears throat> we're going to start to, it can start to create conflict. Not always, but it can create conflict. Yeah, Caleb. Is James 4, 1, 2, 3, seems very strange to me that this is the only explanation of where we have conflict. I didn't say it's the only. It is the one I have chosen for today. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm, there's I'm, certainly there's tons of examples of conflict throughout the Bible. Certainly narrative conflict, which I think we can also draw lessons from is all over the Old Testament. Um, so, yeah. We, it's, it's like there's, there's, you know, obviously conflicts with you know, passions within you, but then mm -hmm. there's also, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Sure. And so it's like distinguishing between those two um, ways of conflict is, I think, pretty important. Sure. Totally agree. Yeah. You may have said this already, but I'm just something like that just, anyway. When you say conflict, you're not, I don't hear you using the word sin. And so can you just yeah. flesh out a little bit like why yeah, yeah. using the word conflict instead of sin, what the difference is there? Yeah, so I mean I think I think mo I think we are generally generally talking about sinful conflict here. So I should probably just blanket statement. Generally speaking, I have sinful conflict in mind. Now when we talk about James four, one through three, um, these are sinful passions that then create conflict between people. So it's that conflict is rooted in sin. Now I do want to caveat, is there, are there times where people conflict um, or argue or however, have an absence of peace, if you want to put it that way, uh, with not sinful motivations? Of course, all the time. I mean, 
every church has an example of, hey, I think we should do things this way. And some other leader says, no, I think we should do it this way. And then there's conflict. Now, that can turn sinful or not, depending on how they handle it. Uh, for the purposes of today, generally speaking, I'm talking about sinful conflict. So I think that's a really helpful, helpful distinction. Uh, last, D, or uh, D, rather. Um, Jeremiah 17, 9, which, goodness gracious, that's a heck of a verse. Would somebody read that? The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Hmm. So point D is our distorted view of reality. Uh, because we are sinful creatures, uh, and we have sinful hearts, we don't actually have an objective view of the things that are happening to us. This is incredibly difficult. For me personally, um, went through a very long season of conflict that was rooted in sin uh, with a brother in Christ uh, for yeah, better part of three or four years. And I would be in meetings with this brother and then we'd go away and then I'd see him again and we would literally, I'd hear him describe what had happened. And I'm like, that is literally the opposite of what I experienced in that moment. I don't know how you got there. I don't know what you're seeing. I, what I, am I just, you start to, you start to wonder if you're losing touch with reality. Um, and what I just became convinced of, I found Jeremiah 17, nine in that season and just said, Oh wow. Like his heart's deceiving him and my heart's deceiving me. Like we have self-interested lenses on reality. And so our distorted view of reality can inflame conflict, sinful conflict in particular, because it becomes very self-justifying. You minimize your own part in whatever absence of peace there is and maximize your quote-unquote opponent's part in, in that argument, in that conflict, in that absence of peace, which, which the Bible would have us do the opposite, is emphasize our own part, our own ownership, and minimize our brother or sisters. As soon as you see them as an opponent, there's there's a defeat that you've suffered. Uh, it's a it's a it's a brother or sister in Christ. Um, and finally, our idolatry. So I don't have a proof text for that particular one. I will say our idolatry leads to conflict because we're going to put things in the place of God, which puts us in conflict with the Lord, which again is our ultimate problem. But we also tend to sacrifice pretty much anything in pursuit of that idol, including our relationships with other human beings. Um, so that's five. That's not exhaustive uh, on where does conflict come from. So what I wanna do uh, is I wanna kind of break us into small groups amongst yourselves between two to four, and maybe think about another, hopefully biblical, source of conflict that you can think of. We'll take hmm, four minutes to do so. Go for it.
<laughs> I mean, ultimately, I want you to diagnose, like, be able to start to diagnose, like, where conflict is coming from, but fruit is fine, too, because that helps. Uh, that's data, right? Like, oh, there's conflict here that we might not be aware of. Yeah. You have 30 seconds. This is just the group participation part. That's right. <laughs> well, you got, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it does. <laughs> I'm a sinner. <laughs> All right, guys, that's time. So, what did you all come up with? Happy to start anywhere. I, I will point at people if I need to. Mm -hmm. Hagler, you look like you got something. Well, I was going to point to Mark, but. Conflicts. Absolutely. 
of Andrew summed it up in was our flesh, the world, and the, the devil. devil. Absolutely. Yeah, so Andrew did a good point that he did before. Mm-hmm. Our God saved the devil, right? Like, there are spirits out there at war mm-hmm. around us. Uh, so it's not just our sinful flesh, but there are actual evil spirits mm-hmm. in our world today creating conflict. Yeah, so spiritual warfare and spiritual warfare defined as uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so that's a great, that's a great example the world system that has been set up that is not ruled by by the Lord, like that will make war on Christians in subtle and not so subtle ways. There's clearly an absence of peace. And when that happens, our flesh, <laughs> obviously it's going to be a source of internal conflict for us as the spirit wages war with our sinful flesh. And yeah, quite literally the devil and those that serve the devil trying to yeah do anything they can to thwart Christians in their pursuit of Christ. Absolutely great example. Other example. Pride. Tell me more. Well, it, it goes along with your your uh, your sense of entitlement, right? The pride is, you know, I deserve yep. or I am better than or yep. others should yep. move out of the way for me, right? So I think yep. of, of Chronicles or, or mm-hmm. Kings, you see the pride of the, the Jewish kings, right? Yep. And we see when the kingdom split constantly. And yet you got one good one who starts to follow God a little bit. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go back again because everybody, I surround myself with people who don't love God. Yeah. Who, uh, yep. Who manipulate me in some way, shape, or form because they tell me that I'm better than I actually That's right. Yeah, pride is a great one. One of the stickiest things or most ensnaring things about pride or damaging things, rather, is pride puts me over you. It's not, it's not just me against you, though that's part of it. It's me over you. That's why pride, people who really struggle with excess pride, they often tend to be oppressive, domineering, bullying, these things. They, they want to put me over you. Uh, and so that will very obviously lead to an absence of biblical peace. Um, even if the person being yeah, bullied, cajoled, oppressed, whatever, you want, whatever language you want to use there. Even if they're not fighting back, there's still an absence of peace. Um, if they're not fighting back, it's a false peace that's happening, not a real one. Yeah, Caleb? One of the things we'll be talking about, we'll go back to the devil again, uh, <laughs> but it's more like um, we think of lies as something where someone knows the truth and they deliberately tell a lie. Um, but in 2 Corinthians 4, it's talking about even when the gospel is preached, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. And so in that sense, the truth is spoken, but it's not understood. Yeah. And so it's there's the the work of the devil in that is is almost it's not even in the heart, I guess, of someone. It's literally in the in the communication where that is yeah. uh, not seen. Yeah. Um, and so do not let the sun go down on your anger. One of the things that you cannot do when the sun goes down <coughs> is see. Yeah. Um, and so that's part of it too. Yeah, it's good. It's insightful. Similar to that, um, the devil distorting the gospel, which can obviously produce divisions even within the church. Oh yeah, even within the church. Yeah. You know, obviously, during Jesus' temptation, the devil's you know misusing, misquoting the Bible. And obviously, there's plenty of world religions out there that misquote the Bible. Yeah. So that produces yeah. divisions. Yeah. Yeah. So both like the devil's ability to, yeah twist uh, our understanding of the gospel, but I think Sam uh, corollary or a 
yeah, consequence of what you just said is also false doctrine, right? Like there is a there's a sense in which false doctrine that enters the church and then divides it, removes biblical peace from that place. So I think that that's super helpful. All right, that's good stuff. See, I missed a bunch. Uh, so if this is where conflict comes from, how do we then pursue peace? And this is pursuing peace through Christ. Uh, we're going to start with Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. I'll read that, um, hopefully for the sake of time, though maybe I'll go slower. Uh, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For though we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. I went a little farther than I wanted to. Uh, but that being said, we want, to perceive, we want to pursue peace through Christ. We want to remember the gospel. That's point A. This is what Christ has done on our behalf. He has removed the dividing wall of hostility. He has made peace with God, and he unites his people into one body, therefore removing uh, an absence of peace and creating a unity within his people that should be instructive inspiring a model of what unity looks like to the world around it so remember the gospel second point start with ourselves we've got to start with ourselves psalm 139 23 through 24 i will read that as well search me 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 oh god and know my heart try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grave, grievous way in me and lead me into the way everlasting we've got to start with us right so when when there is sinful conflict happening there is often a temptation to say like so i'll use myself as an example if i lose my temper in the home with my children or my wife uh like there's I'm so there's two ways to there's two ways to uh, you know channel anger. Usually it's like you blow up or you clam up. I am a blower up. I hate to say it, um, and so I'll my voice will raise. I'll get angry. You can hear it, and I know in my mind this is not good. And I'll be like, I know I'm angry. I'm sorry. I'm being angry. But you, but you did this or you did that. It's an immediate like. Yeah, I know I'm sinning, but somehow that's not my fault. And this is in this, when we do this, we are imaging Adam in the garden be like, but the woman you gave me, which is a complete abdication of responsibility. And so when we are in sinful conflict, we have to start with ourselves and our own sin and confess that to the Lord and repent of it. So start with ourselves. Uh, Matthew 5, 23 through 24. Would somebody grab that? So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before, therefore, for that, leave your gift <laughs> there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And would somebody grab Matthew 18, 15 through 17? 
So whose responsibility is it to make peace? The person who sins or is sinned against? Yes. <laughs> yes and amen. It is always our responsibility to make peace. That's point C. It's always our responsibility to make peace. Andrew Talone, last Sunday evening, made this very point in his excellent Sunday evening service. Um, yeah, the text is clear. Like, it's always on us. If we've sinned, we've got to repent. If we've been sinned against, we've got to lovingly confront. It is always our responsibility to make peace. All right, so now we're going to get into some super practical stuff. Uh, I wanted to lay a lot of, yeah, kind of biblical framework here before I got into the super practical stuff, but I think, I think it's helpful to talk through. Um, so let's talk about sinful responses to conflict. Um, and so as we are, as we're in sinful conflict or as we see sinful conflict, we want to start to recognize what are appropriate and inappropriate responses to that particular conflict. So here's uh, sinful responses to conflict under the category of peace faking. Quick caveat, I am very much indebted to uh, Ken Sandy's Peacemaker as well as the Peacemaking Pastor, which is uh, a, the same principles applied to the role of the pastor. Um, I think that's by a guy named Poirier. Poirier. Uh, both of those are, yeah, absolutely commend them. Super helpful to me. Wouldn't, not 100% agreement, as always, with all things that are not the Bible, but very, very, very helpful, particularly as we think about peacemaking. That being said, sinful responses to conflict, peace faking. I have three. Denial. Uh, so in, we see in Proverbs 24, 11 through 12, we don't need to read it, but in this section, somebody is... Uh, there's sin happening and the, per the person says, well, I didn't even know about this. And so this is a denial of the sin that's in front of us. Denial. Second, flight. So this is, uh, there's both a narrow and a broad example of fleeing conflict. So the, the narrow is, I'm leaving. Like, I'm leaving this marriage. I'm leaving this church. I'm leaving this family. I'm leaving this job. Whatever it could be. It's like, I'm out of here. Do not pass go. Do not collect 200, I'm leaving. Um, the broad is I withdraw emotionally or relationally. I just don't spend as much time with this person who has, yeah, there's been sinful conflict on my side or their side or both sides. I'm just going to kind of whoop, move over here and kind of avoid them. Third, um, the most drastic um, is, is suicide. Uh, which is super, yeah, super serious thing. But there are some people who are so oppressed or hurt by the conflict um, and they don't see a way out of it that suicide becomes a tempting <laughs> option. Uh, there is also the sinful responses to conflict that fall under the heading of peace breaking. So instead of faking peace, this is breaking peace. One... Assault. So this could be narrow or broad. Assault could literally be physical assault. But more broadly, this could be things like slander, attacking their character, um, 
trying to berate somebody into doing what you want them to do. Uh, it's just a verbal, incessant beating down until you get your way. Two, litigation. This can be actually in the legal system. It can be lawsuits. It can be things of this sort. But it can also be more broadly defined as I'm going to build a case in my head against you and I'm going to repeat that case to anyone I think might be able to mediate or adjudicate this sinful conflict. Um, see, this, see this in marriage counseling all the time. Um, it, is, it is constant where you will get two parties of a marriage that's in conflict or in deep trouble and they will both have lists of what the other has done. But litiga litigation would be peace breaking. And finally, murder. Um, again, extremely uh, serious. The narrow definition is actually taking somebody's life. More broadly, though, 1 John 3.15 uh, tells us that those who hate hates their brother um, yeah, murders them in his heart. And so in the same way, if we hate um, the person that we're in conflict with, we are breaking peace. Uh, let's see. Those are six sinful responses to conflict. I'm going to give you guys three minutes, same groups. See if you can come up with any other additional sinful responses to conflict. Go for it. Clear, uh, yeah. Are we talking about sinful responses to conflict within the church? Oh, anywhere. Anywhere. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs>
actions or just for yourself. One more minute. One more minute to be brilliant. All right, guys, time. Bacardi's and Eileen. What uh, what'd you come up with? Uh, I think the primary one would be kind of a, a, a false sense of like peace and resolution. Like mm. saying you're sorry but not meaning it. Like accepting forgiveness but not actually doing that. Yep. Allowing that root of bitterness to harbor and yep. kind of sustain. Yeah. That's the peace faking. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Never seen our children do that. No, yeah. <laughs> The best is the I'm sorry when you're angry. Like, I'm sorry. You're like, yeah, for sure. That's excellent. Um, yeah, very good. Other examples? Well, I want to think about that. I think that uh, to, to accentuate that, there can't always be one thing that I've discussed with our group. There can't be forgiveness without repentance. Mm. And so a lot of times you hear, you're supposed to forgive somebody when they sin against you. Well, you cannot forgive them unless they confess or repent. Now, you can offer, you, we hold forgiveness out freely, and we don't harbor bitterness. But Jesus, God does not forgive us until we repent. Forgiveness does not come until after repentance. So I'm going to make a distinction. Um, so I think there is a, so yeah, in a sense, yes, I agree. Like Luke 17, 3 through 4. Uh, if your brother says, I'm sorry, repent, you know, forgive him seven times, 70 times. Um, at the same time, I think there's a distinct, there's a, there's a distinction I want to add here in the, ter- in the, in the sense of which, like, there are sins that you have not confessed that you're not even aware of. Me too. Yeah. And yet the Lord forgives those in Christ. And so like, we haven't repented specifically of everything that we have generally tried to have a heart of repentance to the Lord. So what the, the little addition I would add there is, we can forgive, i.e. let go of our right towards punishment or justice or whatever um, without reconciliation. So what I would say is like we're going to release like all of our rights and say vengeance is the Lord's. But that does not mean I'm going to be back in relationship with this person. Um, so... What I think is impossible without repentance is reconciliation. I guess, yeah. Um, yeah. I agree with that. 
Any questions on this? Is actually super important. Okay. Yeah. We talked about uh, here, which was what does it mean to treat someone as a gentile or a tax collector? Mm -hmm. And one of the ways <coughs> that it almost sounds like is you just like, oh, well, that's a bad person. But on the other sense, it seems like you just kind of need to get over it because with gentiles and tax collectors, you don't expect a certain amount of um, uh, repentance or or you know reconciliation it's just kind of like all right well, yeah. this is what the relationship is going to be like yeah and because it just seems like hold the grudge is odd right and odd so stuff to get from Jesus himself. right and so i think i think you're there's a sense in which you get over it and that's not you know obviously if there's deep hurt there that's always going to be but like i can't hold them to this standard that they don't believe in and how does how is the christian supposed to treat the gentile and the tax collector actually like trying to win them over with the gospel like we are called to continue to love them. Now, that doesn't mean if somebody's like stolen money from us that I'm going to be like, "Hey, here's the keys to my bank account." Like that's not that's not what we're talking about, but I think we are still to love them and pursuing them with the gospel. So I I I think all of those are good points. Um super helpful. Just one more thing on that. Yeah. I think we've I've had conversations with folks also that the person who is aggrieved, I think we have to be careful on the our flawed judgment of <coughs> entitlement because mm -hmm. I've heard like well, I'm not going to forgive, or it's not repentance until they've done what I deem mm -hmm. is the appropriate action, and that is a unwinnable yeah. perspective. Yeah, and we're going to talk, so one one point at the end of all of this that I'll talk about is like, what do we do when peace isn't possible? So, but yeah, I think that that's a, that's a great point. Any other additions to sinful responses to conflict? Yeah. Capitulation. Yes. Yeah. I'm just going to give up. Yeah. Just say you're right. Yeah. I, you know, like whatever. Yep. Like yep. that. And so then there's no resolution. Yep. They, yep. I guess it's a point of withdrawal, but. But it's a, it's like an active one. Like that's another piece faking. Um, yeah, for sure. That's good. Uh, okay. We're going to talk a bit about biblical responses to conflict. These fall into two broad categories. The one is personal so if you're one of the parties involved in the sinful conflict how do you then start to make peace how do you work towards peace and then there's a, a second category of a social or a group uh, effort towards peace uh, peacemaking uh, so proverbs 19:11 says the following good sense makes one slow to anger and it is and it is his glory to overlook an offense so biblical response to conflict first one overlook we're going to overlook an offense so uh, elsewhere in the Bible it says love covers a multitude of sins and so if we are able uh, to overlook an offense uh, this is this is a good thing this is a loving thing this is a Christ-like thing so overlook two Reconciliation, we talked about this, uh, Luke 17, 3 through 4. I'll read it for us. <clears throat> Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So this is something that's going to, this is going to mark Christians' lives and community and families and churches, they're just going to constantly be sinning and forgiving, sinning and forgiving and reconciling. Just, this is going to be a pattern of life. I have to apologize to my kids daily. 
Um, they should apologize to me daily. Um, this is part of the deal. Like the, the Christian life is going to be one of reconciliation, of sin, repent, forgive, reconciliation. So reconciliation is a biblical response to conflict. Again, this is the, the personal. Now we're going to move a bit towards the social, communal, however you want to say that, uh, response to conflict. One, uh, three, point three, negotiation. Uh, and so if there's a conflict, particularly when it's, you know, maybe not necessarily driven by sinful impulses, but rather, you know, I want to go, I want to do ministry this way, you want to do ministry that way. Can we come to the middle? Is there a third way? So negotiation. Four is mediation slash arbitration. So this is where there's two parties in sinful conflict or conflict in general, but it's usually sinful. Um, and they can't get out of it. They need help. Uh, would somebody read Romans 14, 9? For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Yeah, so as, as we think about Christ's uh, sacrifice for us, um, this should drive us towards mediation. Though I'm I actually don't know if that's the right reference. It's 19, yeah. Go ahead, say it. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Yeah, let's pursue what makes for peace. Uh, Philippians 4, 2 through 3, don't need to read it. That one actually, uh, Paul exhorts the Philippians to, there's two ladies in the church, they're apparently fighting. He's like, hey, help them make peace with one another. So this is something the church is supposed to do. We are supposed to be helping each other make peace. It's a Christianity is a community project. First Samuel 25 is, um, it's David's about to kill Naboth and Abigail's like intercedes, mediates and turns David aside from sinning. If you remember this story, uh, she's married to a worthless man. Uh, he, you know, doesn't treat David in the way that he should. And David's going to strap on his sword, kill him, kill everybody else. And Abigail's like, yeah, please don't. Here's the gift. I'm sorry, my Lord's a foolish man. And so she makes peace, and David doesn't do something he shouldn't have, and then the Lord kills that guy anyway. Um, so that's right. Uh, so we want to mediate, arbitrate. Uh, five there is accountability. So this is Matthew 18, 15 through 17. We read this before. So this is church discipline. So one of the ways we make peace is by putting somebody through the process of church discipline. A couple of ways that this makes peace. One, church discipline opens their eyes to their sin and they turn from it, and then we go back to point two where we reconcile. Or it makes peace by essentially removing the unbeliever from our midst and saying, like, this is this person that we can no longer affirm their profession of faith. Um, and so peace is restored to the body, the community, because the unrepentant sinner has been removed. Um, in the last few minutes I have here, I did the question occurred to me as we were talking, what do we do when peace isn't possible? Um, this is something that happens a lot. Um, particularly, not particularly, often in the church. Uh, what, do we, what do we do when peace isn't possible? Um, so scripture tells us, as far as it depends on you, live in peace with all men so far as it depends on you. And so you are to exhaust the possibilities for making peace. And at a certain point, if peace is no longer possible, 
then you just have to trust the Lord with it. I think the other part of this is, as far as it depends on you, you need to prepare your heart for, if, it's, if you've been sinned against, forgiveness. Uh, if that person, if you sin against somebody else and they're not willing to forgive you, just what it looks like to repent, you need to prepare yourself for the moment that peace could be possible. So example in my own life, the person I mentioned before who I had deep conflict with, the best advice I got that was most helpful for me is to prepare my heart to forgive that person should he knock on my door and say, I'm sorry. And me to say, I forgive you. Um, there are ta- there early that I was not in a place where I was like ready to forgive that person. Um, and I think part of the work the Lord does has done on me is just prepare my heart to forgive this person. The second thing I'll say is ultimately our hope is staked in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Um, someday uh, when we are, yeah, when the Lord returns, uh, he will wipe away every tear. He, there will be no more sin, sickness, or death. And for those of us who are in Christ, and yet at odds in this world, in that day, we will be perfectly unified, living in perfect peace. And so Christ will restore peace to us, even if we are unable to restore peace in this life. There are examples of sins against people in this life that permanently fracture relationship. Um, And this side of glory, that's how it's going to be. But the Lord promises to restore all things, and so he will. And for those that we're in conflict with who aren't um, a part of God's family, who aren't Christians, Will our tears will be wiped away because the Lord will remove them and that person will receive the due uh, penalty for their error. And so justice, true justice, will be accomplished. Uh, it is, I am one minute past time. So I, am, I was told I need to be sharpish about 10.15. And so now I'm trying to be, I'm trying to avoid conflict and make peace and not go away. <laughs> um, so I'm going to pray for us uh, and then we can be about our, our Sundays. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you make peace on our behalf through Christ. We have no ability to make peace for ourselves with you. We have no ability really to make peace with one another. We need your spirit to do those things. And so we do pray that you would instruct us, guide us, help us be peacemakers, that we would be quick to overlook an offense, that we would desire reconciliation at all times, that we would be willing to lean in the community of saints to help us um, find peace where we're unable to do it ourselves, that we would not feel shame in that. Um, It is natural for sinful human beings to come into sinful conflict with one another. And so we do ask for your, your, your help with all of that. And ultimately we do stake our hope in Revelation 21. We know that someday there will be perfect peace. And so we long for that day. And in the meantime, sustain us and make us more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.